Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Konst and I am pre-taping the show on Thursday. So by the time you watch this, I have no doubt we will have some big news, but the story is still clear today, yesterday, over the summer. We are wrapping up a long week at the end of a very long political year, decade, century. But can I just say thank you to all of you for joining us on this long journey? It means a lot to me personally to go through these very strange days with you. It's a lot different than 2016 for me. You know, Stronger Together has become this sort of democratic branded cliche, a hashtag easy to type, harder to live. But in this moment, the most important thing we have is that solidarity with each other. When we talk about seeing and appreciating each other, there is a risk we can sound like a meditation tape. So I'd rather sound like an old union song, Solidarity Together. I really felt that this week and maybe you did too. In those chilling moments when it wasn't very clear what had happened or how this would turn out, I drew strength knowing from knowing that all of you in the movement are ready to keep the struggle going, whatever form the struggle needs to take. To say the obvious, we can't let our guard down and we have to sharpen up. A wounded Donald Trump is more dangerous than a winning one. And beyond that, we have a big job of work to do to push the Democrats towards the progressive agenda that the country actually wants. And for them, to actually go to war with the Republicans. Let's show my tweet that I made the other day about how Democrats, if only Democrats treated Republicans the way that they treat progressives. We know from this election that Americans, voters, they want our policies, our solutions, because we actually present them. Our challenge though, is to speak to them in their voices, to speak to everyone in their voices, the common voice, to avoid arguments over, over labels and partisanship and to stay out of the culture wars. Our job is to focus like a laser on working people. What makes working people's lives better? We know because we are working people. Well-paying and protected jobs, healthcare, free education, fair wages and a livable income, those are the policies that win. And those are our progressive policies. Florida voted nearly two to one to increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Still not nearly enough, I say, but these were even the voters that voted to reelect Donald Trump. As they voted for $15 an hour, they voted for Donald Trump. Let that swirl in your mind for a bit. The gap between Joe Biden's vote in Florida and the vote for a $15 minimum wage is the gap between the technocratic neoliberal Democratic Party that keeps losing and a People's Democratic Party that can realign American politics and get us out of this mess. That is the clear message this week. It is as clear to me as Ronald Reagan's Morning in America. The future is really ours. Now is the time, though, to think deeply about how we go from winning a few important voices to sweeping the country when the country needs us. We need to sweep to win. This is when the country wants our ideas, needs our ideas. Now is when we sharpen up our strategy, clear out the noise and distractions, and unify, which is why... I'm gonna take it easy this weekend, uh, get some sleep and come back to work next week. And I'm eager to pick up the fight and I hope you're gonna join me. We have a beautiful show today, uh, it's Femme Friday. We have Kim Kelly on, we're gonna talk about labor and women and really what happened in this election. And later we have uh, Esha uh, and Nabila on to talk about the state of 
women in this party and and what happened and a little bit about Georgia as well uh, as Nabila is from Georgia and she can explain to us what has happened there and possibly by the time we watch this, you watch this, we will know what actually happened in terms of the results, but the story of how that happened, I think is very important. Stick around, we'll be right back. Welcome Hi. Kelly to the show. Let me get my thing figured out. Uh, <laughs> you think I in Zoom? Uh, it's totally fine. So Kim, you know, we we are such a, a big fan of your work. Uh, you write about labor. Uh, you write about women in labor, which is basically the concept of Fridays on our show. Uh, we 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 do progressive commentary, but we try very hard to remind folks what uh, an enlightened feminism would look like, I guess is the best way of saying it. Uh, but we're, we're doing this, um, as I said in the opening, we're, we're recording this the day before it publishes and we do not know the outcome of the election, but we know the story of the election. I think that's you know, the big thing here is what can we learn as progressives and what can Democrats learn from and, and just like how bad is the American right? Uh, or is this just some sort of flexing before they all like collapse? I remember there was an old like Chris Rock uh, line that he said about the Tea Party 10 years ago. And he said, you know, I have a three-year-old and, and if anybody's ever had a three-year-old, you know that right before bedtime, they run around the house screaming, flailing their arms, having temper tantrums, and then they just collapse. And he, and he said that was the Tea Party. That was 10 years ago. Uh, so they haven't collapsed yet. Yeah, it hasn't aged great. <laughs> hasn't aged great. But um, I guess I'll just start off with, with that, that question is, how real is this right-wing pushback that, that, that seemed to be very um, loud and pronounced, uh, especially down ballot? How real is it? Oh, I think it's huge. I mean, my concern isn't, you know, the mouthy, normal Republicans who are upset that their president is having a bad day. I'm concerned about the white supremacists and the militias and, you know, the gangs. Like, there, there are people out there who are not even that invested in the outcome of this election, per se, because they're beyond electoral politics. They're looking for a civil war or a race war. Like, there's this deep pulsating undercurrent of white supremacist hatred that's always existed in this country, but it's been enabled and amplified so much in the past four years that like, that's what I'm worried about, you know, Nazis with guns, because we have a lot of them. Like, they're all, they're all underfoot. County. <laughs> right? Like, that's, that's probably the most innocuous level that we're going to see. Like, people that, that research these phenomena way deeper than I do are very concerned about what we're going to see in the next few months, if not next few years, because this election is just, it's an election. A lot of people will stop caring after it's over, but a lot of people won't. And that's what we need to be paying attention to. So there's this constant theme. Um, I mean, it's exhausting at this point, especially since it, since our message was probably proven right again. Uh, they've seen that the Democrats, especially over the last 10 years, um, more than that, but, but electorally at least, have completely zapped themselves of any uh, ideas that could call, that could come up, you know, solutions to the economic problems since the 2008 collapse, for instance. And, you know, that that all was born out of out of trade deals and, and, and you know, unions being taken on at, in uh, across America by the right wing and Democrats doing nothing. Um, so now we're in the situation where y you have folks 
who are, are, are using the rhetoric of Trump and his like, you know, supposed people's party as also the vehicle of hate. And that hate is sometimes directed at the others um, when, you know, I think for us on the left, we, we think if there was an alternative, maybe that anger wouldn't be manifested into what's happening right now, or at least as much so, and it would be manifested in, into uh, policies that support working people and solidarity and targeted like the oligarchs. I mean, how much is sort of a manufactured anger? Like, is like they're obviously Nazis. There's always going to be people who just <laughs> think that they're supreme, right? But then, I mean, how many of, of, of this, this growing force, how much of that is really like folks who think they're supreme because like they don't think they have a fair shot compared to like the person they think is on welfare or whatever their mentality is? Right. I mean, we can never discount the impact of racism, white supremacy in this country. It's what we're built on. It's it's imbued in everything around us. But I think you're right that there is I mean, it's it became like such a throwaway talking point, the economic uh, was economic anxiety. Right. And that, that the media use that as a crutch to avoid talking about racism. But there the whole fact that Trump's pseudo populist message has resonated with some people. I mean, it shows that people are thirsty for something that they want to be heard, right? All of this is about having your voice heard. And the Democrats have shown that they're not really willing to listen to anyone that doesn't fall in line with their, you know, neoliberal capitalist order, right? Look what they do to the progressive people in their own party. And if you're a young person who isn't making a lot of money, who's living somewhere where you feel like you're stuck and you're looking at this, this election, I don't know if either, I mean, neither of them really offer very much for you, but the Democrats, they could try a lot harder, right? I mean, look what they did to the only semi-socialist candidate they had. Look at like how excited people got to listen to Bernie Sanders. I feel like there was, I'm not even a big Bernie guy. I'm not an anybody guy, but <laughs> I think there was so much potential there and that scared off the party leadership. And that was a huge loss because now there are so many people that just want to be, they want to feel like they hold value and that their perspective matters in some way and there are a lot of people who aren't making any money who don't have health insurance who don't have much of anything in this country and a lot of them are channeling that frustration that rage and that hatred into hating people that aren't like them and hating people that they think are getting all the good stuff because education in this country sucks and nobody really knows what's happening with people that aren't like them unless they actively go and seek it out it's I mean, it's a bummer, and I think it's really dangerous, too. Like, the Democrats have, they're so good at screwing up every shot they get. I mean, this is, I, I talked about this a couple of days ago, the day after the election. I said, you know, this is, this is so historic in that usually these wave years, right, Democrats could just show up, and, like, that's it. Like when Republicans yeah, are polling counts. that low, they just show up and it's suddenly like 45 women get elected to Congress. And like, you know, that's sort of th these big years, 2006, 1992, uh, I'm, uh, 2008, of course. I mean, we did have Barack Obama, but I think it would have happened if you, if, if, if it was anybody else. Um, and yet we lost our ballot. I mean, it's just the most, it, it just shows you when you run only against Trump, the coalition you build is only going to vote against Trump. And then they're not going to vote for the people down the ballot. And so if you don't support candidates, congressional candidates, legislative candidates that actually have bold ideas, then even the ones that do have bold ideas suffer the consequences because of your 
you know, milk toast a congressional candidate that you force through the primaries or Senate candidate in the case of Amy McGrath. Right. You have to offer people something, not just not that, you know, like, look at what happened. Uh, Cori Bush is very unapologetically radical, at the very least for a elected politician. And she won. Look at the squad who have just added a bunch of members like people that actually believe in something resonate with people that care enough to vote. You know, like it's such a it's such a fantasy to think. I, I will say one thing. Um, oh, I'm not a big electoral guy, so I don't know. It's okay, yeah. <laughs> we can talk about other stuff. But um, it, that is an interesting. I, I would be very curious to see, like, how it would play out. And that, I think, is the ultimate experiment, is how do we see the progressive candidates play out in districts that, you know, could have maybe, I think, 10 years ago they could have won. But now it's like you have this brainwashed group of Republicans who are just going to see everything to the left of George Bush, the socialist. <laughs> and, and communist or what I mean they don't they can't I don't even they think everybody's Fidel Castro like running out and <laughs> trying to take we wish um <laughs> but okay so, so let's, let's pivot a little bit to the more radical uh um, ideas I mean like protecting our unions and organizing and you know yeah, radical terrible radical. Yeah, exactly <laughs> things that used to be standard in this country so you know you, you write a lot about unions um and, and you wrote a piece uh, in Teen Vogue about how Trump has failed the working class and only helped the rich. No, no shocker to us, but can, can you give us some of the, the highlights, specifically what he has done in his wrecking ball against the labor movement, against working people uh, in his short tenure of one term? God, the, the report I cited laid out 50 instances, which I don't have them all memorized, but even just some of the things that stick out to me as just, just the cruelty attached to them. It's not even just negligence or general Republican uselessness. There's just so much cruelty in the fact that he actively worked to slash safety regulations in slaughterhouses, which are staffed by low-wage workers of color, many of which are immigrants. It's hard, cold, dirty, dangerous work already. And they slashed regulations. And then they slashed uh, the, uh, the existence of inspectors to come and inspect the meat that is being produced that is being sold to people who eat it in this country it seems like it might matter a little bit you know given you know and i'm sure everyone's read upton sinclair's the jungle not that different really i mean the, the thing that kills me as a labor person is what he's done to the department of labor and osha and the nlrb the national labor relations board because that is currently stacked with career anti-union lawyers who are being tasked with representing the interests of workers in this country who are trying to unionize. It's like putting a cat in charge of uh, your pet mouse. Like it's just ridiculous. It makes no sense. It's not a very colorful metaphor, but it's been a long week in Philly. <laughs> I like it. But I mean, this is infuriating to me because I mean, to go back to electoral, just because it's a presence of this, this moment that we're in. How is it that, that, that Biden could not tap into any of those 50 things and message around that. I mean, the margin of Biden's win would have been much bigger. Um, I think the turnout would have been the same, but you probably would have been able to move more folks over and say Democrats are the party that doesn't stack corporate interests into the relations, labor relations board that's supposed to protect workers. We don't They're want your arm to be chopped off if you're like working in a meatpacking plant. What? 
It's very basic. And yeah, they're so afraid of scaring off these mythical moderate Republicans or like this coalition of imaginary white people who they think they need to court instead of thinking about, well, what issues are impacting, you know, black and brown people who are working to keep this country running? It's, it's like they just take a, they take a, they take it for granted that black folks and people of color are going to vote for them. So they're like, okay, what can we say that won't scare off, you know, everyone's dad? Like everyone's rich uncle. I think what's so crazy about this is it's so extreme that I don't even think it's going to scare off everybody's dad who's probably like a sausage meeting dad and like, you know, wherever they're trying to in Ohio. Uh, I think they want to have clean meat. Like, I don't I think they don't want to get sick. I mean, it just seems so apparent the, the, the egregiousness of Trump, the, the just like you said, cruelty. To, you know, if, if if Biden wanted to be like talking about civility and honor, then he could have tapped into that stuff easily and said, this is a guy who like wants you to get sick. Because all they want to talk about, all they want to talk about is for, they're obsessed with this idea of the white working class, which is not even the majority of the working class anymore in this country. If which you know, if you pay attention to people who work, and is all of the the speeches I saw from the the Biden Democrat world was like, we're not going to take away fracking, or like we're going to bring back a factory, maybe. It's like, okay, well, like what do you have to offer food service workers and retail workers and utilities workers and sex workers and incarcerated workers? Like it's not just white guys and hard hats like my dad. And he voted for Trump anyway. Like there's a much, the working class is not a monolith. The labor movement is not a monolith. And they keep trying to sell themselves to this sort of like Reagan era, 70s, 80s stereotype of what a union worker is. And it's just not like that anymore. It's not like that anymore, but you know, the states that they want to win, it's more like that than it is in, in, in say Nevada or which obviously he needed to win. <laughs> We're seeing now. Um, Let's let's shift a little bit to California because I this is infuriating. Um, Prop twenty two, uh, which well actually we've covered on the show, but do you want to describe what what Prop twenty two is? God, it's breaking my heart is what it is. It's this ballot measure, which is now going to be a law in California that was advanced by lobbyists or by executives from Uber and Lyft and Postmates and Instacart. Essentially, they want to create this sort of third classification for workers. You have right now we have employees full time and we have independent contractors and then they want to create this sort of terrible middle ground for uh, for gig workers, mm -hmm. for people that work for these companies who are quite clearly employees, but they the companies do not want to acknowledge them as such because then they would have to follow labor laws, pay them wages, pay them benefits. They would have to treat them like people. Right. And these Silicon Valley vampires do not want to do that because it will they can buy maybe one less yacht a year. So they advanced this ballot measure called Prop 22. And they went about it in such an insidious way. They reached it in the language of social justice, and they tried to paint it as this positive thing that's gonna help workers and lift them up and take care of people. And they spent $200 million to, to on, on advertising, on lobbyists. They used in-app advertising. So like, if so you're in California, Right, like, yeah, explain Yeah, that. if you're in California, you uh, you need to take an Uber to go drop off your grandma's groceries. Like, a little message would come up about Prop 22 saying, hey, this is good, vote for this. They required their drivers to, it, it would pop up wherever you ride, their, their drivers would have to acknowledge Prop 22, yes, they're okay. They used every 
every possible thing in their arsenal to get this passed, to coerce workers and to coerce customers into thinking this is good. This is, I'm being a good person by voting for this. And, you know, there was a really robust effort mounted by unions and workers and labor activists saying like, no, this isn't okay. This is going to set a dangerous precedent. This isn't actually going to help us. Please don't vote for this. But I think they raised about 10 million versus 200 million and a monopoly on the messaging. And it's, it's just heartbreaking because it's the, you know, they, these wealthy Silicon Valley app-based tech bosses bought themselves a law. And that, I mean, that's some Gilded Age stuff, right? That's some robber baron vibes. Yeah. So they bought themselves a law and now it has the, the thing that's terrible, it's terrible already. But the thing that is deeply concerning is that now they saw, okay, that that worked. They're going to try to replicate that success across the country and on a federal level. And if we get to that point, that is going to hurt so many people who already do not have proper labor protections and do not have any benefits and are barely scraping by. No one's driving Lyft for fun anymore, you know? So so, so this is California, obviously, which is a um, has a supermajority. Who are the Democrats, if you have some off the top of your head, that were complicit with this? Because this is this is quite um, aggressively clear that Democrats were on board with this proposition. And of course, it didn't move through the legislature. But the fact that you're in California and Silicon Valley and, and Silicon Valley is represented by Democrats. Um, and that also, just side of that, I think what's really fascinating is that they're using the data that they produce in Silicon Valley to push and basically brainwashed. I mean, we have like advertising standards in this country and they have completely gone deeper into like the the, the technology that they're building and, and providing that that is algorithmic, like they can target folks based on the data that they have to, I mean, at no cost probably, right? Right. I mean, I mean, if you have an engineer on salary who can make it happen, they'll make it. Though I think there was an Uber engineer who quit over this because he was being asked to you know, to work on this project, and he felt it was immoral. Yeah, I'd have to fact check me on that. But I saw that, and was like, this is the kind of thing that you need. People that work at these companies do hold power, and they need to be using it to help people that don't have that power. Um, I don't have a list of Democrats off the top of my head. I try to ignore them as much as possible, <laughs> which is which is difficult as a labor reporter. Yeah. But <laughs> I know that the, the law did, it raked in some high-profile progressive and Democratic endorsements from people that, Maybe either they didn't read the law closely or they felt that it would behoove them to play the middle ground between, oh, we have these workers that don't have any money. We have these tech people that have a lot of money. Maybe we can make everyone happy. And obviously you cannot because that is the tension of capitalism. It's infuriating. Um, what do you think about the labor movement in California? Just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a state that should, seems like it has a stronger movement, um, just appearance. Uh, you've got nurses in California, uh, domestic workers. There's quite a few different movements in California. And I mean, is it probably one of the stronger labor movements in the country? I mean, I would have to say so because they already, they have the benefit of having a very blue local government, right? And that always helps. Yeah. But there's also such a massive population of, of workers there, especially workers of color and immigrant workers. And obviously, you know, the United Farm Workers have been out there for decades trying to organize and trying to force change. Right. We have the garment workers in LA who are being asked to, you know, make masks and sweatshops and people are trying to organize with them. There's, California is, 
it's huge and it's diverse and I, it does give me a lot of hope in terms of what we could do for the labor movement. I have a lot of friends in the labor movement out there and they're very inspiring and I love them very much and I'm sending, I feel bad for them right now because of what's happening. And they, they, that, I think California is someplace that labor needs to be paying a lot of attention to. You know, we talk a lot about the Midwest and about, you know, the movements in the middle of the country and the so-called Rust Belt, but yeah. there's a lot happening on the coast too. Okay, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the the labor force right now in the midst of COVID, right? And this economic, um, current economic recession, possibly depression. What I find fascinating about this emerging labor movement as opposed to the the, the one that the press likes, the white working class Rust Belty type that, that you're talking about is uh, from domestic workers to healthcare workers, education workers, um, flight attendants. These are movements, these are unions that are all female led and majority female made up and, and, and many, um, if not the majority collectively, maybe not so in, in like teachers and flight attendants, are, 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 are folks that uh, have, are immigrants, maybe even on, depends on the field, but documented or not, or previously undocumented. I mean, it's just a really fascinating force. And they're also on the front lines of this pandemic. So, I mean, are you hearing anything from these unions about organizing collectively, um, maybe a strike, a general strike, as a pushback uh, against the failures of all leadership in, 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 in actually protecting these workers in the midst of a pandemic. I mean, you mentioned the flight attendants. One of my personal heroes right now is Sarah Nelson, the president of the AFA CWA. She, I mean, talking about general strikes, she sort of set that, that recent ball in motion in 2019 during the government shutdown when at a meeting of AFL-CIO leaders, she raised the idea. I was like, look, we, we're suffering. We, we have this nuclear option we could pull out. Let's not take it off the table. And now the idea of a general strike has been percolating for the past year. A lot of it is people talking on Twitter, a lot of wishful thinking. But actually, I just had a piece come out in The Baffler earlier this week about the fact that there are local labor councils in a variety of states and cities who have passed resolutions and made noises about the fact that, you know, if, uh, I mean, Trump is clearly trying to steal the election, but if he, like, really goes for it, um, that they're not taking a general strike off the table either. You know, in Seattle and Chicago, which, you know, the Seattle teachers or the Chicago Teachers Union, you do not mess with them. Yeah. That is just a cardinal rule. And in Rochester and Troy and Vermont, in, well, that one hasn't passed yet. There's a lot of activity around that. And to your point about unions that are predominantly made up of women and women of color, I mean, look at what Unite Here has been doing, the hospitality workers union. Mm -hmm. When the pandemic hit, 98% of their members were laid off. 98 for real that that number is just it's unfathomable but the and this is more on the electoral side but if you look at the fact that there are states like nevada and georgia in play right now unite here has launched a gigantic canvas canvassing operation they've been fighting extremely hard to elect this democratic candidate because they see him as someone who will hopefully help because this is thousands upon thousands of people who don't have jobs anymore and don't have anyone looking out for them. And they're pushing, they're, they're pushing the needle in the direction where they need it to go. Like there is so much power in this movement outside of electoral, in the middle of electoral. It's just, 
the labor movement is huge and it is powerful and it's been knocked down and beaten up and had his knees cut out from under it. But I don't think that it can ever truly be conquered because, I mean, we all work and there's a there's a yeah, there's a, a labor leader within every worker, I think. I love that labor leader within every worker. Um, and on that note, just just because uh, because we're looking like there's this conversation about Latinos didn't turn out, and you know it's like America didn't understand that they're or maybe like CNN didn't understand that uh, <laughs> Latinos is a you know obviously for several backgrounds, but I do think it's fascinating to see that even within the conversation about like what background. Um, does Latino voter in Nevada have or Texas have? And also gender is a big part of that too. Um, you know, Mexican men turned out a little bit more for Trump, you know, collectively still for, for Biden, but a little bit more for Trump. And that I think shocked folks and it, it affected their, their data. But what you just said about Unite here, um, that to me is like the labor component of of demographics like we talk about demographics like if you just say things that appeal to them it's going to work but specifically if there's organized labor that's working within that demographic and overlapping with the demographic then suddenly it becomes more conditional like no it's not that biden has to say something biden has to actually do something for us and we're demanding it and we will organize for him as a result and deliver him nevada california arizona wherever it is Right. We have so much power, but it's, you know, it, it can be difficult sometimes to get national leadership who are very much entwined with the Democratic Party and enjoy the fruits of that relationship in some ways. It can be hard to get them to fight right. and to ask things of the establishment, right? Like labor has been, the Democrats see organized labor as like, oh, that, those are our guys. We don't have to worry about them. We don't have to offer them anything. Yep. Well, yeah, you do, obviously, because you've been offering peanuts and people are starving, mm -hmm. you know, and people are fed up with it. And I mean, I don't think that labor will ever go Republican, but the Democrats really need to start actively trying to offer labor something besides like a, a post here, or maybe some watered down legislation there, because the working class in this country is fed up and there's more of us than there are of them. Mm -hmm. And that's why states like Arizona, which um, obviously very close, but they passed this Proposition 208 to uh, fund uh, public schools, which have been under attack in, in Arizona as part of that red uprising, um, red state uprising. Okay, before we wrap up, just just what do you think is going to be one of the big issues that you know, anything, any rumblings other than a general strike um, in the labor movement that is going to be put on the on the table immediately to you know, depending on who's the president, but say it's Biden, uh, which is looking like, and maybe by the time this airs, he will be declared. Uh, what what are they, what, what is the top issue? That's a hard one because there's so much. I will say, and this actually doesn't get that much attention, but to me, it matters very much. There's been talk about abolishing and raising the sub-minimum wage. And that's something that does not get a lot of play, but it's something that disproportionately impacts people who are disabled physically and mentally in this country, the people who are left behind and left out of these conversations, particularly about labor. And that is something that's come to the fore when we're talking about remote work, working from home. That's a conversation that dis uh, disability rights activists have been pushing for for decades, and all of a sudden that's changed. Yeah. But there are still people making dollars per hour just because that they are living with disabilities and that impacts people a little more like why it, why was that even that 
That is, and actually that's the same reason that tipped workers only make $2 an hour. It's, it's, it's enshrined in labor law. And I guess it's this perception that they're just not, well, tipped workers are supposed to make up their tips via their employers. But I think, I mean, I could go through it again, but I'm, I think it just speaks to this, this horrible, deeply rooted American idea that some people's work is worth less than others. Yeah, we had Representative Chris Rabb, who um, is 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 a black representative, uh, radical left, I should say, I don't want him to say, in, in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. And he has studied um, just sort of the roots of, of of where a lot of these laws come from. And he said that t- tipping is actually a legacy of slavery, um, tipped work. So it was a fascinating. Uh, every time he comes on, he just like wakes me up with one of these like factoids. <laughs> Dude, it's, it all goes, I mean, this is America. Everything goes back to slavery, right? Yep. Nothing is clean. Nothing is exempt. It all goes back to the, that original sin. Kim Calvin. <laughs> thank you. This, this is enlightening. Um, a lot to discuss and I would love to have you back on, uh, especially, sure. you know, after, after we have a sense of who's our president, our potential president. Um, and then we can talk about, you know, where we go from here and what's happening on the ground. That sounds great to me. I've got my fingers crossed. Yeah. I'm not sure what I'm hoping for anymore, but they're crossed anyway. <laughs> that's what I am too. I'm like, that's over? <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, that's my big one. That is over. You know, you know, things are bad when an anarchist is like, I kind of hope Biden wins. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Our next guest is Nabila Islam. Nabila Islam is, of course, uh, the the founder of Progressive List. She is a former candidate for uh, Congress in Georgia, and she is a national organizing director of Matriarch. She's there in Georgia right now. All eyes on Georgia. I just want to note at the top, Nabila, um, that we are taping a day before this airs. Um, so we might have a lot more information uh, by the time everybody's watching this. But again, I keep saying this over and over, the story's the same. And so what I really am curious about is what like, what have we been missing in Georgia? What has the collective been missing in Georgia? I'm sure you, you know what's going on in Georgia being a resident of Gwinnett County, but why was this just like not even on the map? Oh, well, to me, it was always on the map because I've been saying Georgia's going to flip blue for a long time. And right now we are focused on counting every uh, vote. I don't know if you can see my sweatshirt, but it says count every vote. You got that print- who printed that so fast? Uh, my friend who works at a, at a nonprofit. But, That's awesome. um, but look, Georgia, I, I mean, Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor, lost with less than 50,000 votes. Uh, and we all knew that the margins were going to get better for Democrats in 2020. Um, but we've, we've constantly been a flyover state. You know, people look at Florida, people look at, uh, you know, North Carolina, but I mean, look at it now. We're literally the margin between uh, Biden and Trump is 13,500 votes right now in Georgia with 50,000 ballots still remaining to be counted in mostly blue counties. So um I, I mean, I think we've always been competitive and I just think people just wrote us off because we're in the South. Yeah. Um, but this is the new South and um, I'm confident that we're going to flip blue soon. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's, it's, it's not like people of color just moved to Georgia and just started voting Democratic. I mean, generations of, of, of folks have been voting de- de- Democratic and either been taken for granted or they just were like, eh, I, 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 I really don't understand it. Um, 
you know, it is the new South in many ways. I mean, especially um, first generation uh, voters like yourself. But even with that, it was always there was always this diverse Democratic coalition in the South that, you know, when Johnson said he lost the South for a couple of generations, I mean, it just made me it just it just crystallized how clear they recognized the Jim Crow laws mm-hmm. that were pre- preventing people of color who were going to vote Democratic from voting and they didn't want to fight it. And and now you're sitting in Georgia where uh, the laws, um, as restrictive as they still are, there's been a lot of court battles and same thing in Florida. There's the, the, the mass, it's just, the masses are growing so much more. The coalition just keeps growing mm-hmm. that you, it, it can't fight whatever voter suppression that was on the table this time around. Does that seem Absolutely. right? Yeah, I mean, look, I've always said this, Republicans can't win on policy, so they got to cheat. And uh, we've been going uh, after our county commission uh, for voter suppression, our elections board, our election supervisor, for various things that they've done to suppress the vote in Gwinnett County. It's the key metro Atlanta counties that are going to deliver, you know, these 16 electoral votes to uh, Joe Biden. And it's also because um, we, like you said, we've become increasingly diverse and, you know, we're not habitually used to voting. Right. And so this is something that has taken my generation to get used to and get your parents to come out and vote. Um, when I ran for Congress in Georgia 7th congressional district, one of the most diverse districts in the country, um, 20% of the population is foreign born. Uh, it's a majority minority district. And so I think what happened was not, I think, but what I know has happened in Georgia is they've always constantly catered to the white vote Mm. and, um, you know, trying to peel off some Republicans. And we've seen this strategy um, at the national level. We've seen the strategy everywhere. And I've been complaining that we just need to focus on our base and turn them out. I think Stacey Abrams did um, a lot to her credit. She gave people a choice. She was loud and outspoken. And as a, you know, a black woman running for governor, like people were able to see themselves in her candidacy and really she was inspiring and she activated so many people. So not only did, you know, Donald Trump's presidency awake, awaken a lot of people, it was also 2018 Abrams did as well in 2020, the prospect of being so close as we were in 2018, I think people realized the power of their vote and recognized that the suppression was happening because the Republicans knew how powerful their votes were, our votes are. And so um, we're mad as hell. And we, we came out to vote in huge trials. And actually, I'll give you a stat. Um, I've been constantly saying that the path to the um, flipping Georgia Blues through Gwinnett. And our margins from 2018 grew about 12%. I'm sorry, from 2016. Grew 2016. about 12%. 2016. Yes. And so, and we only flipped my county 20, in 2016 by like five points. And so um, the same thing with Cobb, which is right next door where, where Lucy McBath is, she uh, also flipped uh, all, their margins also about 12, 12, 12 points uh, since 2016. And so that's huge, um, considering we were red counties before 2016 and we were just getting reactivated. That you're in a, a majority minority county uh, district and, and, and it's red. Um, I mean, I remember when you were running, you, you know, just for folks so you, so you all know, when when uh, Nabila ran for Congress, she was running in the district, the closest district in the country. I mean, a Republican won, not anymore, but it's amazing to me that like, there just was no investment in a county that was so clearly and distinctly going to be democratic. Yes, because this is what I've learned, Nomi, is if you, no one's gonna save you, you gotta 
save yourself. Yeah. All right. So we're a black and brown working class community. Who's going to come into Gwinnett and pour in, invest here? And it had to be ourselves. And that's why after I lost, I was like, okay, what can I do to make the biggest impact in my community? And I, um, our, my chairwoman reached out to me and we put together uh, chairwoman of the Gwinnett County party, put together this program to actually reach voters um, in digital ads. We did a five, uh, five figure digital ads um, in Vietnamese, Korean, Spanish. No one's ever done that before. We sent out a hundred thousand mailers to low propensity voters. Uh, folks that don't get reached out to because we don't think they're going to vote. Yeah. These were new voters that we brought into the fold. Uh, we put together an election protection program because um, as we saw in my primary in June 9th, I didn't know who uh, who was the winner until 10 days after uh, my uh, the, my primary. And so we made sure we uh, marked up, we ran up the score when it came to poll watchers. We got 80% of our precincts were covered by poll watchers, the most in the entire state. But it just goes to show that had we not done this, uh, no one else was going to do it. And also, how would this have affected the election? I mean, the Biden campaign is now saying that they, they feel very comfortable and um, at least at this moment about winning Georgia, um, as they do about Arizona, where I am right now. And, mm -hmm. and you know, these are two states. I mean, I, just as you've been complaining about Gwinnett, I wrote an op-ed in the Arizona Republic, I don't 10 years ago, uh, what year was it? Eight years ago, something like that, saying Democrats need to wake up <laughs> and like clean up the party and recognize that you got to invest here. And and it's it, it's possible. It just can't be on these wave years. And you, you really have to do the work. Um, so Nabila, let's let's talk a little bit more about like what voter suppression tactics were used um, and, and, and what worked and what didn't. Ooh, okay. This so Gwinnett County is the only county in the state of Georgia that is federally mandated to have um, our ballots printed in two languages because of how big our Hispanic population is. So English and Spanish, mm -hmm. um, and because of that, our county uh, had our ballots were delayed in being actually made and sent out to voters. Mm -hmm. There are people as of you know election day that did not receive their absentee ballot even though they had requested it in September. And, uh, you know, the Secretary of uh, State was just gaslighting them, telling them, oh, it's going to come, it's going to come. And people like gave up and early voted. But there's so many other folks that didn't have that uh, opportunity because A, you know, they're, they're immunocompromised. You shouldn't have to compromise your health in order to exercise your constitutional right to vote. Folks may, might, might be abroad. They couldn't get their votes in time. I mean, that to me was super egregious. And the way that they dealt with it was, um, they were blaming us. They blamed us, the victims of this, for um, uh, filing lawsuits against uh, uh, the state for not printing these ballots in the way that they should be. Um, and so they were saying it was our fault. That was one. Uh, two, they uh, in Gwinnett County, uh, we are, even though we're blue, our county commission uh, up until... Tuesday, our county commission was uh, majority Republican. Our election supervisor, she's a Republican, and our elections board is um, majority Republican as well. And uh, they made sure that we only had nine early voting sites. So I don't know if you guys remember those videos of those long lines on the uh, first day of primary voting in Georgia, where people waited up eight to 11 hours. That's because our county commission decided that was enough, even though uh, we have the highest um, so 62,000 voters per early voting precinct in comparison to other counties. So there's another county, Hall County, um, which Gwinnett is 450% bigger, had eight early voting precincts, eight. 
Okay, we're 450% bigger. They're a Republican county. They were trying to tell us, oh, we don't need more early voting locations. You guys are fine. And sorry, I'm just gonna, I'm really passionate about this. We also got $4.3 million in order to invest in our election system to make it better so it would be more accessible to voters. That was something that we did. Oh, and then lastly, I'll talk about poll workers. Um, the county went above and beyond to recruit poll workers because the county commission kept talking about we don't have enough poll workers and we all recognize if we don't have poll workers, then machines stop working for some reason. You lose plugs. And sure. so we made sure to recruit. We recruited hundreds of poll workers and like they weren't getting calls back. And so then I created the spreadsheet where I was like, it was a Google form. I was like, all right, if you apply to be a poll worker, make sure you submit your name here. And we followed up with our folks to see if they had gotten called back. Never got a call back. Never got a call back. We asked the county why that happened they tried to tell us they never sent in their application okay while these folks have screenshots of their applications being submitted so something nefarious is going on because they're not even owning that they messed up they're just kind of like brushing it aside and i think it's because they recognize that when we do flip blue it's going to be because of the votes in gwinnett and um people are already coming up with their own theories that biden's going to win the state by less than a thousand votes so I hope you guys are documenting and, and creating a list of all of the tactics. So at least whatever happens, if there is some sort of legal action, we can take in afterwards, public sort of inform information, hearings, whatever it is. Um, it's very clear because, I mean, on the other side, I remember in Iowa, uh, the caucuses in 2016, we we really had a document kind of I mean, the, 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 the thing about voting reminds me of Iowa, because I remember uh, showing up at Iowa and the lines were all, and people were being denied able, you know, the ability to go caucus. And it was because there were fewer locations than four years prior. And that was a Democrat move. So the tactics are the same and, and, and we have to be aware of what these tactics are. So we're not caught in, in a situation in which people can't turn out and vote and, you know, plugs disappear and voting machines malfunction and poll workers don't get phone calls back. But we as a, as a collective movement need to be very aware um, before we look, before it's too late. So we're not, you know, it's important to organize and recognize these things, but to preemptively fight them off so our energy isn't being used, you know, on election day uh, on the defense instead of getting out people to vote. Nabila, um, really fascinating. It's looking good. Yes. And uh, just, just actually real quick before we wrap up, how are the congressional seats looking? So Lucy McBath uh, won her reelection. With that being said, uh, Karen Handel uh, deleted her Twitter and Facebook today. Uh, so, <laughs> um, her opponent, yes. Her opponent um, who, so she had won uh, the first time around. And then John Ossoff, if you guys remember that election from 2017, lost oh, wow. to her. And then Lucy McBath won by like less than 1,500 votes, but she won her re-election, so I'm really thankful about that. And then Carolyn Bordeaux, who may became the uh, primary, uh, became the nominee for the general election, she flipped my district by 2.4 was the percentage. Um, you know, I thought it would be a lot larger because uh, we were the number one house district to flip in the nation. So um, I'm going to try to figure out what happened there. But, you know, win is a win, and I'm glad that we don't have a QAnon supporter as uh, my representative. With <laughs> um, that being said, I, I still believe that this district deserves someone that is a progressive and is going to really speak to truths to power for this working class district. And because the majority of voters here are black and brown working people and we need to have a strong voice at the table. So 
I hope Carolyn will be able to channel that for us and give us representation that we deserve. And, and how about the Senate? How'd that turn out? Oh, yeah, Senate. Let's start with the Senate. Uh, so Raphael Warnock is going to be in a runoff with Kelly Loeffler, uh, which was the ideal scenario because Doug Collins, uh, I, don't, I don't think I would have been good in a runoff to have him. I think there were some Democrats that probably would have voted for Doug. Uh, but Kelly Loeffler is just, just, just scum yeah. of the earth. Um, I think she's ubiquitously hated across the board. Um, and even Republicans despise her. The leadership here did not support her. And I think the reason that she was able to skate through was because of her own money. She is independently wealthy. Right. Um, and so there's going to be runoff. And then uh, I just got news that John uh, David Perdue uh, is under 50% now. So in Georgia, if you don't get over 50%, it is a runoff. So we're looking at two runoffs. Um, if, and when you know, does that happen with John Ossoff, you're saying? Uh, it's the same day in January. Um, I can't lie for me and remember what day exactly in January, uh, but it will be in January. So The makeup of the Senate still mm-hmm. to this moment might be conditioned to how these runoffs work in Georgia. That story has not penetrated the national media. Oh, it will. Oh, it will. <laughs> I mean, it will, obviously, but like... <laughs> Oh, God, I can't believe I'm going to be rooting for Senator John Ossoff. Guys, come on. I, uh, Lots for the sake of democracy, I am rooting for them both. So that's where that's where we're at right now. So I know. Nabil Islam, thanks for your work. See you around. Yeah, <laughs> Next week, we can assess. All right, take care. Um, take care. <laughs> oh, my God, we're rooting. It's like like an anarchist rooting for, for Biden and progressives rooting for Ossoff. All right, Ashna, Asha, excuse me, Asha. Krishna Swami, I have to say her name properly, uh, is is a lawyer. She is the host of the Historically podcast uh, and, you know, a longtime uh, fighter on the left. Uh, Esha, let's, we lost you. There you are. I think Esha's just setting up her, we need to see your sound and your video, Esha. Uh, but while she's working on that, I will go through her bio a little bit more. Asha worked in corporate law for a while, but when the Bernie Sanders campaign came in 2015, it lit a passion in her. She taught law at RMIT in Australia, and she has done work around uh, modern monetary theory. And you know, I think what's really fascinating about her podcast historically is she delves into sort of the past movements that we've been in. And I think it's been very informative, especially in recent weeks on what we can learn from the past divisions. Welcome, Asha. This is, this is a very unusual show because we're pre-taping, we're usually a live show, uh, but I um, am n- I'm not gonna be available tomorrow. So we're gonna be covering this as if uh, we may or may not know the results of the election. Um, but I think what's important is, you look good, you look good, is that okay. we know the story of the election. Um, and we know that the movement has some real uh, strategic uh, thinking to do in, in that the Democrats the establishment showed their weakness down ballot, especially uh, Joe Biden, as much as he might win. And the numbers look very much towards his favor. The margins are actually worse than they were with Hillary Clinton. We lost your video, Asha. Oh God. Okay. I'm going to just stop it. Stop and use the... Yeah. Yeah. We got to how about how, Okay. Can we I just five like... minutes. We have five minutes, Asha. Let's do this. <laughs> okay. Sorry about that. Okay. We'll just use the normal video then. Perfect. Okay. Cause we're, we're, we're not live. Um, 
All right, so Asha, you know, you 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 host this historically podcast, and I've been obsessed with uh, looking at past revolutions, progressive, you know, uh, movements throughout history, whether it's it's the Russian revolutions or the Mexican revolutions or our own revolution, um, and having in, in French Revolution, trying to understand. We've had these moments before where, okay, great, we have a few wins in Congress, and that's fantastic. It is not going to get us out of this disaster immediately. We have to start sweeping electorally and also as a movement sharpening up so that we're not fighting with each other and canceling each other out and and like being obsessed with our feelings rather than understanding the Republicans are here to ruin us. And they're using algorithms and, and monopolies and the Democrats and even progressive organizations to take us out. So let's talk about moments from past revolutions what what could you provide us? What information? Um, how are we repeating history right now? Well, can I do the opposite of one way we're not repeating history? Sure. Um, in the 1920s, every news every union had its own newspaper and own radio station. Um, so they did not rely on the New York Times for their news. They had, we had a very robust working class press. We had even like from Cleveland and Detroit and Milwaukee, the small towns had a working class newspaper. We don't have that anymore because they got bought out, consolidated, all the stuff. And the and of course, with the radio, we, they got deregulated. And so what we're not doing is having a robust working class press. And none of us, if we're on the left, we should not at all be relying on either New York Times, Washington Post for anything other than comedy. <laughs> All right. I mean, it's important to know what they're talking about, too. All right. So there's no robust working class press. Um, and even even the shows that we're on, we're still on platforms that are I mean, there's been congressional hearings now. This isn't like like some sort of conspiracy theory. There have been massive investigations about how shows like Ben Shapiro's are propped up and and, you know, Mother Jones, for instance, uh, has had their stuff buried or Jacobin or you yourself, frankly. Uh, you know, let, let's talk about that. We've talked about it on our show and we can we can show the tweet again. Um, but you tweeted sort of a, a joke about McCarthy and the irony of this is like <laughs> it's like so meta. I can't believe it. What did you tweet the other day? I said that people, boomers need to kill the Joseph McCarthy in their head because Joseph McCarthy's been dead for about 50 years. And Twitter banned me for threatening the safety of this alleged Joseph McCarthy. And they would not let me back on until I deleted the tweet. I appealed. And so eventually I caved and deleted the tweet, even though on principle I should have st stayed. But... Hey, this mind-boggling to me because number one that is McCarthyist tactics right there if, if you had to spell it out to, for you guys if you didn't get that um but number two I mean the day after the election and today um on Thursday MSNBC was just so focused on like the social it's because of socialism socialism is why we lost down ballot you know, all these people that, that lost down ballot well, not all of them but the theme was neoliberalism. It was working with Republicans. It was appealing to the center. And what did the center do? The center voted against Trump, but then voted for the Republicans down ballot. Well, yeah. Um, for me, $15 minimum wage, which, sorry, I have to say that. It, well, also, um, a lot of progressive ballot measures all over the country, like New Jersey legalized marijuana, Oregon legalized all drugs. No, not legalized, decriminalized, decriminalized. possession. 
So what I think is that with MSNBC, they just actually rant um, what they want to be the truth. For example, I believe that Arizona had a lot to do with the fact that we have a strong um, coalition of um, organizations that do that work for on behalf of immigration and Latinos and that kind of organizing that's been done for the past four years. Mm -hmm. But yet on MSNBC, they said it must be Cindy McCain's endorsement. And it's like, no, it is. So what I see is that there's a disconnect because they want it to be one thing. Right. They want American people to not want base. I wouldn't even call it socialism, but just basic human needs. And that's what they're hearing in their bubbles. And they're actually doing no data analysis because if you looked at somebody, there was a Twitter where somebody put all these screenshots on Fox News polls. Yeah. Socialized medicine was at 70%. Um, Green New Deal was at 60 something. So it's not a data analysis as much as a narrative building analysis. And that in Arizona, uh, you know, that too, um, Prop 208 to, to fund uh, public schools in a, in a state that is a right to work state where where public school teachers are making $35,000 a year. I don't know how you live in Phoenix, Arizona, fifth largest city in the country uh, off of $35,000 a year. I have friends who have three, four kids and they're two teachers in their household and, and they're not making an, it's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much. And so that wasn't a Cindy McCain <laughs> no. endorsement that passed that. Um, I mean, okay, so so let's go back to history real quick. All right, we're, we're, we don't have the press, uh, the working class press. Uh, what what could we be, what, what are we repeating right now? What are we doing that like, because I really think we got to sharpen up. Like this is the moment Uh-oh. from now until inauguration, like get focused people. We don't, I mean, I live in Astoria. We don't, the country is not Astoria, which is good. Like it doesn't, there's a lot of things there, right? It's not because we don't understand rural. It's because we have to understand how to win. We don't have enemies in Astoria that are trying to, you know, uh, it, it, we do. I mean, the Democratic Party is not necessarily that that great, um, but it's not the same. It's I not the same. Agree. Um, another thing we're missing is the very strong militant union movement. I have a really funny story from 1912, where back then it was illegal and bosses would actually hire Pinkertons or people with actual guns to shoot people who unionized. So it was dangerous. So what two union organizers who are super smart did was that they played the good cop, bad cop. So one guy went in and infiltrated the workshop as like a pro boss laborer. And then the other guy would ask all the laborers, do you want to unionize? And then if he said no, then he would say, oh, this guy is pro-union and get all the anti-union people fired. And eventually in 1912, like they got unionized with 3,000 workers and they got minimum wage. They actually got paid in wages. And so it's hard, I know. What they're doing is that now that we're working remotely via Zoom, you're not going to be able to have those kitchen conversations with your colleagues. So we have the lowest union rate and collective bargaining is one of the first ways, I guess it's like a 
school on direct action mm-hmm. and how to cooperate, what to like, I mean, before the workers go to the boss with their demands, there's so much organization. Like they all have to sit together and decide what they want and what they want to demand, what they want to wait on, how to negotiate. There's so much. And we don't have any unions. We have gig workers and who are in, I don't know what independent, like it's, non-sustainable they're not employees they're not getting any benefits they're barely making ends meet and it's harder to unionize because you don't you you don't meet your colleagues and that's the second part that we are completely missing and the third one is of course in the 1930s we had unemployment councils that had millions and millions of people so it's like a union for the unemployed and that really helped push the works project program and the new deal because these unemployed people were together in a block and they would tell the mayor hey we're not going to let you pass unless you cancel the evictions right and so those are the three things we don't have all right, lots of lots of uh, lessons and lots of. I mean, there's building that we just don't have. We, we're not able to because of, like you said, independent contractors, and of course, this Prop 22 in, in California, which will now be law, makes it even harder to do so. Um, but we do have DSA, um, and many people in DSA are union members and are part of the the trade union movement. Uh, but it, it's also something that is not militant. Um, you know, it's an open membership. Uh, and, and as a result, sometimes the conversations, I mean, we have to be very conscious of like penetration. Like, are there folks that introduce conversations that distract us away from like the key important issues? I mean, I will start saying, listen, I'll start saying that now. Like, I, sometimes I'm like, why are we talking about this when the immediate, like if we're really practicing our socialism in a Marxist way, we should be having conversations about what's materially, like what are our material crises and how do we get to the short, what is the shortest route in making sure that we protect the most vulnerable people in our community. And absolutely. And like I said, tenants councils, collective action. 1930s, they had tenant councils that stopped, literally stopped evictions. And what I notice is at least from interviews is that sheriffs really don't want to be evicting old ladies. So just having a bunch of neighbors come together on the day of the eviction can make them less willing to just take that extra step with that little pressure. And so, yeah, it's just that we don't understand that nothing individually that we do will work. We need to put collective pressure and sometimes collective pressure could be as simple as standing in front of the door of the old lady who's going to get evicted because of the crisis. Yeah. But I mean, but there's this, there's something that's a little bit more complex in this era is there, okay, you've been evicted and, and now your credit's wrecked and now you can't get a new home when you do, you know, pick up your, when you have a job again. And I mean, there's just the, the, the complexities of this housing crisis in, in New York in particular, we're very familiar with it, but across America, we don't, we're not even consciously understanding how, how much the way that the, the housing crisis of 2008 and earlier affected this economy, you know, this rental housing crisis is going to, I think, have just as much as a significant impact. Oh, absolutely. Um, Some sources predict um, at least 30 million people are at risk of becoming evicted because 
of the COVID-related joblessness, and then they can't pay rent, and it ricochets from there. And what we do know is that a lot of uh, houses, or at least mortgages, are owned by bank banks. Right. And for them, it's actually nothing. They don't have to foreclose. But it's because they have some sort of procedure where they automatically send it to our lo- like their in-house counsel who didn't like it's and actually with evictions you know what happens 90 percent of the time the tenant does not show up because they don't get the proper notification and so the judge just if if, if there's two parties and one party doesn't show up then it, the judge automatically rules on favor of the party that does show up and so wow a, a lot of times we can uh like a lot of times we can help by daily just looking up all the evictions in your neighborhood and telling your neighbors hey you're going to be there like maybe you haven't gotten it in the mail maybe they didn't know summon you properly and so we actually need organizations that handle everything from a systemic way so evictions are easy to look at and but we need a way to have like a collective neighborhood watch on the evictions to see who's going to go and then there are free legal aid services, but it's hard if you're getting evicted. So I, the only way I see it is by having massive collective action at whatever the level it makes sense, rentals or like your building, building level. Wise, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, and without that, nothing's going to change. You're not gonna get the legislator to change it because they don't care. And so we really have to think systemically and with evictions, especially, they're actually pretty easy. And the really interesting thing is I was speaking to, uh, do you know him, um, Russ Cirincioni? He, he ran for yes, um, yeah, yeah. Congress. Uh, yeah, he, he's an eviction. He's a good people's eviction lawyer. Uh, so he helps a lot of people. And for example, um, he says that in some places in New Jersey, they have set up an eviction court watch. And um, so that way, at least the first step is people who are poor knowing about their hearings to show up, which is half the battle. So it has to be done yeah. more than electorally. Asha, Asha Krishna Swami, did I say mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Check out her podcast, Historically, historic.ly. It's a great podcast. You also have like a a newsletter that you send out with it, which is really interesting, including photos and history. And I, I, I'm really, um, you know, I, I love, I love podcasts that go back in history. It's just a great way to kind of quickly absorb it all. Okay. By the way, quick correction. Um, yes. I can't afford the historically domain. It's so it's historically.substack.com. Sub- Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> no worries. It's like, because it'll take you to a site and it says, buy this domain for $5,000. I'm like, I can't afford it. <laughs> Oh, wait, I have to do my plug. Speaking of uh, guys, thanks for joining us. And, and I know this was an unusual show because we pre-taped it, but thank you for sticking around. Uh, it's a crazy week. We will see you on Tuesday, but make sure to smash that like button and click that subscribe and, and that little bell up there. That's what will let you know when, you know, our show goes live. But I also do these, these, like sometimes these pop-up interviews like uh, last night, you know, Tommy Sunshine was out on the streets and 
I jumped on the phone with him and he showed us the police force on the street, which we had never seen that level of police force in uh, in New York City before. That's how you find out about those lives. And of course, if you can join us on patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show, it's the Patreons who make this show happen. Uh, we are, 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 this is a tough time for independent media uh, for a lot of reasons, an election cycle and it's it's uh, COVID. And so it's really those, those contributions, those patrons uh, who are sustaining us. I know that's cliche, but I'm telling you guys, like we see it. Like if we lose a few at the end of the month, I'm like, oh, I'll, what is it going to take to keep you? Because that's like the $250 that we need to, you know, have the right internet. <laughs> like, it's it's a lot. You know, Asha. And Nomiki is one of the few working, new and emerging working class presses. So we absolutely need it. It's vital. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. Have a great, have a great weekend. <laughs> and uh, we will see you on Tuesday. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of news. A lot of news on Tuesday. Thank you to all. Thank you to the, the um, moderators in there. I don't know who's in there today, but you know I am grateful. We are grateful to you. Uh, thanks to Harvey K, who Professor Harvey K, who I have no doubt uh, is in there uh, mixing it up, and to everybody else who sent love. We will make sure to give you shout outs on Tuesday. Uh, with that, have a great weekend. Bye.